Happy Mother's Day. Thank you for joining us today here. Thank you, darling, sweetheart, wonderful husband for words undeserved. Stay in the marriage long enough because the new wine is coming, is, is my word for you today. Dangerous mothers of the Bible. Dangerous is a word which my daughter says, Mom, please don't keep saying that to Blanton. I'm always telling him he's just such a dangerous boy, you know, because he can jump off things. She's like, it's a warning, Mom. You're not supposed to use it that way. Which is true, because dangerous means likely to cause harm or injury. It's perilous and it's risky. And quite frankly, motherhood is a dangerous profession, isn't it? From the moment you find out that you're pregnant in that first trimester and you have morning sickness and you cannot tolerate the smell of anything to the last uh, trimester where you've lost your ankles and you don't know if you'll ever find them again to uh, sitting in a service with a four-year-old and wondering if you'll make it through the whole thing uh, to the 16-year-old, do you know that one in five teenagers, 16-year-olds, will have a wreck the first year of their uh, driving? That's right, Mom. I'm just a statistic. Motherhood is dangerous, but parenting can also be dangerous. And we're going to look at two moms in the Bible who were uh, dangerous mothers in, in two different ways. One was dangerous in uh, the harm that perhaps her motives and attitudes caused in her children's life. Another dangerous to the kingdom of darkness in the way that she chose to trust the Lord. So as we begin this morning, let's, let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity today for us to open our hearts and, and not hear from me, but for, to hear from you. And that can only happen, Abba, if you send your spirit, if you ignite the truth of your word, if you give us the courage to hear you and respond to you. And so we ask for that today. We pray, Father, for clarity and your anointing, and we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start with the first mom in the Bible, who is Eve. So you can turn, if you want to, in your copy of Scripture to Genesis chapter 4. Before we get to her becoming a mother, though, we have to think about and talk about Eve pre-kid. She was uh, created by God and given, set forth to Adam he was like, wow, this is great. Um, this is, she will be called woman because she was taken out of man. And it goes on at that place in Genesis chapter 2 to say uh, in verse 23, verse 2, Matt, Adam exclaims, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Oh, that's painful. I don't want my son to, to leave me, but that's what the scripture says. And shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A man shall 
leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Uh, in other messages, David has just made it so clear and it's such a truth that, it, that it's important for, for a, a son, for a daughter to leave their family of origin and to cleave to their spouse. And this new unit starts at that point. Um, that is where the loyalty lies between a husband and a wife, not to, to uh, parents, even though we love our parents, um, we are honoring God's word in making a priority out of our marriage union rather than our parental union. Uh, because it's only the marriage union, union that God calls one flesh. Now, let's get something straight right here. If you're single, the fact that the two become one flesh does not mean that you're walking around right now half a person, that you're incomplete because you don't have a spouse. And it's also true that when you do get a spouse and you become one flesh, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you share a brain, that you like the same things, that you do the same things. In fact, um, and I used to think that, oh, we just need to be one flesh. Why can't he see things the way, the right way, the way, the way I see them? You know, why can't he enjoy the things I enjoy? Why can't he squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom instead of mushing it in the middle? You know, why can't he turn the toilet paper where it goes over this way instead of hanging down this way? You know, why can't he put his socks in the hamper, those things? Although, really, in our marriage, he's the neater of the two of us. Let's face it, I'm sort of messy. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> Anyway, being one flesh does not mean that we're sharing a brain. In fact, it's better understood that you're in sync with each other. That you're in sync with each other. You're two separate personalities. And the more that you are you, you give them grace to be them. You want me to say that again? The more that you are you, instead of trying to be what you think they need you to be. The more you're just you, then you give them grace in the space to be who they truly are. The miracle of this one fleshness is that it's two opposites usually, because opposites attract, that are able to be in sync with each other. Now, I know we had the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, just recently, so we can all recall and think back on watching the... the um, ice skaters, the pair skating. I mean, is that the most amazing thing? Every time that's on the television, David gets really fired up, and he's just like, I just want to throw you across the room. I just want to throw you across the room. <laughs> no. But, but, there is one part of that whole thing that just amazes me. It's when the guy, he kind of has his stand like this, and he has his hand like this, right, right? He is waving at the crowd, you know, he's doing like this. He's holding her hand, and what is she doing? She is laying backwards, spinning around so fast that if he were to let go of her, she'd probably go out of the Earth's atmosphere. You know, she's just doing these sin. And all she can see are some sharp blades right at her forehead. Okay, ladies, that's the best way I can describe for you what it's like when you have to submit to your husband in some place where in his leadership he's saying, I feel like this is what the Lord wants us to do, right? And you're having to follow along. There he is like this. 
and you're just like this. Okay, that was free. <laughs> Moving along, we get, we get Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden. Everything is wonderful. I mean, if you're hungry, you just go get, you know, let's see, what will we eat today? And you just pull it off the tree and you eat it. It's, it's the perfect temperature. There's no humidity. Nobody's hair is frizzing. Uh, it, it's just perfect. And then uh, Eve, the, serp the serpent, that's very crafty, um, tempts her, tells her that she can be like God, which sounds like an admirable thing. Most of us would like to be thought of as somebody was to describe us, for them to say, oh, they're so godly. That sounds like a good characteristic, doesn't it? But she takes of the fruit and she eats it and then she gives it to Adam as well. And it's this epic failure because she's disobeyed God. All of a sudden, her eyes are open and she realizes she's naked and she's ashamed because she's aware of her defects and her, ab uh, her inadequacies. The scripture says that she and Adam try to cover up their, their nakedness and they're hiding, they're hiding especially from God, because they've done what he has told them not to do. This is Eve pre-kid. She's eaten the forbidden fruit. She's realized that she was naked. She has um, been made aware of her inadequacies. She's trying to hide and cover up it. She's banned from the Garden of Eden. There will be no more drive-through dinners. I mean, that in itself is enough to break your heart. She's confronted by God, and he lists the consequences of what, she, what her choices have brought about in her life. She's from then on, it says that he's going to greatly increase her pain in childbirth. Can I get a witness here? Is this a true scripture? And, the, and it actually means more than just the time of birth. It's from conception until birth. It's all going to be a lot more complicated and difficult. But he also says to her, and let's look at this in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, the Lord is speaking to uh, woman Eve, and he says uh, in verse 16, the second part of it, Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That always was sort of a mystery to me when I would read that because I would think, it sounds kind of like, you know, the word desire. I mean, that kind of makes you think of hubba hubba ding ding, like, you know, I'm going to look at my husband and there's going to be a lot of desire there, which is true to some extent, but anyway, don't embarrass your husband in front of everyone. So what it really means is that it's, it's this picture of uh, wanting to overtake, wanting to dominate or usurp. That, that what has happened when Eve made the choice to disobey, which really, she had to have gotten that command by way of um, Adam. Because if you look at the scripture, God speaks to Adam. Eve is not there when he speaks to Adam and says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The father, Abba Father says that to Adam. He doesn't say it to Eve. So Adam had given that directive to his wife. She chose to, to not listen to him. 
she had a better idea, which a lot of times I have a better idea. And it resulted in the sin, in the great loss. So, so that door had been opened in Eve's life of, you know, I can, I can stay under my husband's authority or I can try it on my own and do my own thing. And that door being opened would be a problem for her, the, the scripture says, and for all women. That we, when we, we choose to um, do this, to, to dominate, to usurp the authority that our husband, is our husband's by the Lord, to, to um, govern us. The word for, and he shall rule over you, that word for rule um, can be better translated to manage or to govern. And, and it's not the picture that a husband is supposed to be just with his thumb, just keeping his wife, the little lady, under his thumb all the time. What this is talking about is in those situations where the wife is, because of fear or whatever else, she's wanting to kind of go her own way or do her own thing, that, that he steps in and he says, no, this is the way that we need to do it. It's not because the government is issuing out of his own authority. It is uh, the government that is issuing out of the authority of the Lord. It's the husband's responsibility to be listening to the Lord and obeying him. And as he does that, then to govern his household, to go govern his wife and his children. And so, so that's a vital part to see from that. But going back to Eve and the consequences of her choices, her pre-kid choices, there are skeletons in Eve's motherhood closet. There are skeletons there of choices that she made that left the mark of shame and sin on her before she becomes a mom. And there are probably skeletons in each of our closet. There are things, choices that we made that we think, man, if I ever had a child, I certainly don't want them doing that. I want to make sure that they don't follow in that those footsteps, I want things to be differently for them. Sometimes we don't even want to go there. We just want it to stay in the past. That was a different chapter of my life. It's in, in the past. It's not going to bother now. We're just going to go down this corridor, this right way, and not make those choices. But be sure your sins will find you out. If there's something in your closet that's not been brought to Jesus Children have a way of exposing it. Children have a way of making that fear surface freshly and anew. Children have a way of causing us to have to confront those skeletons from our past. Another reason that this is true can be found in part of the consequences of sin that the Father God addresses to Satan when he's talking to him in verse thir uh, 15 of chapter 3, where God says, I am going to put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Th this battle, in other words, is going to go through the family line. This hostility between 
your seed and her seed. If Satan knows something has worked on one person in the family, doesn't it make sense that he's just gonna try to use the same or something similar in the next one down the line? If it worked with dad, it's probably gonna work for the son. It's gonna work for the daughter. And so this battle goes through the family line. Now, this is not a defect, but it's a fact of life. And it's something that we shouldn't run from, but that we should plan for. We shouldn't run from it, but we should plan for it. In my case, there was a history of alcoholism in our family, and I had seen the destruction that it had wreaked it wreaked havoc in my family. And so I wanted to be as far away from, from liquor and alcohol as I could. And so I married a Southern Baptist preacher. <laughs> That's about as far away from alcohol and liquor as you can get. Um, in, in David's family growing up, they didn't even drink Cokes out of bottles because they were in bottles and beer came in bottles. But and that's neither here nor there. I was so convinced that that would never be a problem for our family, and besides the fact that we were Christians and we knew Jesus, that when the girls were doing driver's ed, and it was homeschool driver's ed, and I was their teacher, dangerous, perilous right there. We won't even go there. But, but we skipped the chapter on the consequences of drinking and driving, because they, they weren't ever going to need that, you know. They, they, that was never going to be part of their life. And, and the same for our son, or so I thought. Uh, until in his, our son it was, got in high school, and he's a red-blooded American high school student and a boy. And do I need to finish the story, or can you figure out where I'm going with this? Uh, Evan was at a party that where there was drinking, uh, it got busted. Now, mind you, my husband is still a pastor. That's not changed. Uh, but you talk about feeling like an absolute failure. Oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, I just thought our lives are ruined. How can this, this child do this? What, what is going on here? Um, Lord, where are you? That song that we sang earlier about you'll never let me down, you'll never let me down, you'll never let me down. I am remembering standing in front of the judge with my poor pastor husband and my son between us as the judge is reading Evan the riot act. And I'm thinking, God, I mean, I claimed scripture for this kid. I prayed over him while he was asleep. He went to vacation Bible school. I took all my prenatal vitamins. You know, you let me down is what I felt like. You absolutely let me down. But the next part of that song that we sing is so good because it says, for you are good, for you are good, for you are good. The reason that the Lord let me down was because he was good. He had something better for Evan and for me than what we were experiencing. I was living under the prism of fear of alcohol when the Lord wanted to show me that, that I could trust him with the greatest failures and, and risks and places of temptation in my family line and still see his goodness through it. Well, the end of that story is that um, Evan, you know, went through the process that he had to in order to uh, mitigate that. And part of that was he stood up in the, they had like a mock, they have a 
trial by peers in this situation. And so I'm sitting there, I mean, like Perry Mason in a courtroom, and they have the, you know. And, and all of this happened, mind you, on Wednesday nights. When we should, you know, I mean, typically Wednesday nights when you're supposed to be at church if you're a pastor's wife. But no, I am down with my son and we are serving time to make up for this drinking episode. But to the jury, he said, I made a mistake, but I'm not a, a mistake. And which was, I think, for his mother's heart more than anybody else, you know, because I'm thinking, I have ruined this kid. Okay, back to Eve. Just a little aside for you to let you know, I really relate to Eve because she was a mother. She came into motherhood with, with skeletons in her closet, with a history, and when she heard from God, he gave her this promise and he said, well, it was actually, he was saying it to the Satan, to the serpent, but she heard it where he said that Eve's son was going to crush the serpent on the head. That the serpent would bruise her son's heel, but the son was going to crush that snake on the head. And I mean, I'm with Eve going, just crush that snake on the head. You know, he, he's, he's messed my life up. He's brought shame into my life. Um, he's caused me to be forbidden to be back in the Garden of Eden, the, the, the place of perfection. And I want to see an input to him. She grabbed onto that part of the process. So we see that because now when we get to chapter 4 of Genesis, we see that it says that when she um, had conceived and she gave birth, in verse 1, to Cain. And Cain's name literally means obtained, procured, earned. She says, I have earned, I have obtained this son with God's help. This son is going to crush that snake on the head. It's going to deal with the shame in my life. And, um, and she saw her son as a possession that she, she could have to right her wrongs. Oh, how many of us as parents try to right our wrongs in our kids' lives? They have their own wrongs to deal with, but we're still trying to write, relive our history, rewrite our history through our child's life. And that was uh, Eve's case in this situation. It goes on to say that she also gave birth to a brother, Abel. Now, it doesn't tell us that Eve conceived again, and some scholars think that maybe they were twins. Um, if that's the case, there's such a contrast between these two because you've got Cain who is, I have a son. I have this possession of a son who's going to right my wrongs named Cain. And then the brother Abel. Abel's name means emptiness or vanity or transitory. She didn't need two sons. She just needed one. And so there wasn't a lot of significance put on the second child, it would seem. In, in look how dangerous this attitude plays out in her children's lives. It says that in the course of, course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Uh, verse 2, I skipped over. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Uh, his brother Abel was a keeper of flocks. At this point, we have to back up and explain when Adam and Eve sinned, you can see back in that scripture that it says that the Lord himself slayed an animal 
Because the Old Testament says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. So after Adam and Eve sinned by taking of the forbidden fruit, that God killed this animal to cover their sin. It was a, it's a picture, all of the Old Testament sacrifices are simply pointing to the ultimate true sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ who died for our sins to release us from the power of sin. So this animal was killed, and then the, the um, skin of the animal was used to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. So that had happened. Now we come to the, the children, Cain and Abel, and we find out that Abel's a, a keeper of the flocks, and Cain is a tiller of the ground. There's a contrast here between the tiller of the ground, the word for uh, tiller of the ground there actually means a toilsome labor. Um, it can be used of slave labor. It can be used of serving a false god. So if we look at Cain and we see how he was such an expression of Eve's self-effort to right her wrongs in some ways, to find her own righteousness through her own efforts. Cain exemplified that in that he was working so hard with the ground to produce out of himself something that would be pleasing to God. And we see that Abel, on the other hand, being a keeper of the flock, all he simply did, he was doing what he did, keeping his flock, but he knew it pleased the Lord for an offering to be made from one of the animals. So just, he just brought the offering because that's what God said do. Whereas Cain was working so hard out of his efforts to try to please God. Now, both of them had a relationship with God. And I, I want you to understand, especially if you're a believer, if you're a Christian woman, if you're a Christian mom, you can be a Christian mom and still be by self-efforts trying to offer up to God something that will be acceptable by your own life, but especially in your kids' lives. That your spiritual report card becomes the behavior of your children, and how many Bible verses they know, and what are the right, you know, things that they are doing that looks, you know, how do they pray, and how do they worship? Self-effort instead of being able to, to just, uh, by grace, trust. So it was that Cain, he was so exemplified, his mother's attempts to try to right her wrongs, that he presents his offering to the Lord. And it says that, in verse 5, that for Cain and his offering, the, the Lord had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be, look, be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Here we see in this child's life who had not known what it was to just be loved because they were there, but only was known and loved because their existence meant something of a motive in the parent's life. He was looking, as we all are, for that place of validation and significance of being loved just because we are and not because of our performance in some way. 
And the scripture says that he got angry because he realized that Abel's sacrifice had been accepted and his hadn't. And he became jealous. When you're jealous and you're angry, it's always a sign that you have, you have tied your significance to something that can never fully give those things to you. When you're jealous, it's saying, they have what I need. And you got to question, what is it that you think that you need so much that's going to make you like yourself more, feel better about yourself, feel secure about yourself? Those things, precious ones, can only come from the, the, the one love that is always faithful and true, and that is the Father. So the result of that was that Cain killed his brother. It was a disastrous situation, the result of a dangerous mom. But in contrast to that, we're going to go to a different mother from the New Testament, and she is the, um, Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if you'll turn with me in, to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Actually, we're going to start back up in verse 30. It says, the, the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The word holy offspring literally is the seed. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, 15, as we looked at this with, with Eve, Father God said to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity, hostility between your seed and her seed which was an interesting uh, way of putting it because the seed is not carried in the woman, but it's carried in the man. But he said, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, the serpent seed, Satan's seed, and her seed. This was the first prophecy about the birth of Jesus that we find in Scripture. Eve thought it was about her son, Cain. He was going to come and crush the snake on the head. But it was actually the first prophecy about Jesus because Jesus was going to be the product of, of a virgin named Mary and the Holy Spirit himself. And so this answer was to come. And so he says in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And look at Mary's response. She says, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary was a dangerous woman. And that when God spoke a promise to her, unlike 
Eve, when God spoke a promise to Eve, she went, okay, I've got it, God, okay, I've got it, now I've got to make this happen. Mary realized when this promise was spoken in her humility, this is nothing I can make happen. This is something that only God can do. My responsibility is to obey him and to trust him, but my efforts aren't going to make this happen. She knew the difference between putting forth self-effort and trusting God to be God in her life and then in her child's life. She, she, instead of being like Eve, who was one who, who wanted to be in control and to take charge, she simply yielded and surrendered. Where Eve had put her hope for redemption and righting the wrongs in her life in her child, where she had put her hope there, Mary was putting her hope in the Lord himself and only in the Lord. Where Eve saw the way out to be by her efforts and her works, you know, I'm going to raise the right kid in the right way. Do you know that the word parenting actually in the, is a verb, like I'm going to parent my kids? That's just been within the last three or so decades. Before that, parents didn't, they just had kids and they raised them. It wasn't like we were had a verb called parenting. I mean, now there's apps to tell you how to do whatever you need to with your kid. There's so much pressure, I feel like, on this generation of young parents in their performance. It's, it's amazing. I mean, we had to worry about don't run out into the street in front of a car. But this generation of parents, they have to worry about, you know, are, are these diapers... ecologically sustainable for the universe, you know? Is this bread Um, gluten-free? Is this ice cream lactose intolerant for my, you know, whatever. See, I don't even know the words, the terminology. There's a lot of pressure that these young parents have upon themselves. And I think part of it is a response to the way we've parented and they think, well, which every generation does, maybe we could do this right. You know, we're going to do it right this time, right? Adam and Katie, you're going to do it right. You know, not going to lose Katie like I, lose a kid like I lost Katie one time, but we won't go there right now. <laughs> There's pressure there. And, and the enemy kind of sits it out there like to make us think it's all about our performance. And our children are an absolute 100% reflection of us instead of that the, they're, Little people with wills on their own. And there's parts that we can do for them, but there's a lot that has to be left back in the Lord's hands. So Eve approached parenting in a dangerous way by, by works and self-effort. Mary approached it by faith. She said, Lord, be it done according to your word. Let me hear what you have to say and obey from there. Eve's heart, because her hope was in her child versus in the Lord, her heart was tethered to her child, was tied to her child. What, is that, what happens when a mom ties her heart to her child? She lives in fear. She lives in unrest. She lives in 
you know, trying to manipulate or control things because you've got to make everything right for this kid or, you know, right the wrongs or whatever. She can't really discipline the child because her heart's tied to him and, and maybe she's not getting affirmation and love from her husband and so she's getting it from her kids. So who wants to make this kid mad when does the only smile I see when I come home after work at night? Eve's heart was tethered to her child. Mary's heart was tethered to Father God. She was given this promise that this child was going to be the most special, the most unique, the most awesome child in the universe, which was true Absolutely, of Jesus. Can you imagine how cute he was as a baby? But still, her heart was tethered to Father God and not just linked into her, her son. How do I know that? I know that because in, in John, Luke chapter, I think it's, yeah, 2, 34 and 35, eight days after Jesus was born, they went to the temple to do the, the uh, sacrifice that was required for this child. And there was a prophet there named Simeon. And he blesses the child, but he also says this child is destined to be um, the downfall of many. Maybe I better read it instead of trying to quote, slaughter the trans, slaughter it. Okay, let's see. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. If Mary's heart had been tethered to Jesus, she would have never survived 33 years of knowing this son was destined to die. She would have... She would have she would have done what most of us do as moms. I mean, you know, we defend our sons to the bloody death, don't we? I mean, he's a good boy. He's a good boy. Officer is, is he's being cufflinked and, you know, taken away. He is the best boy. He's just had some hard breaks, you know. Even to, what, our spouse, if we have one. How many times have you found yourself defending a child to your husband when your husband's saying, you know, the hammer needs to fall in this kid's life. And, and you're wanting to say, well, he just needs one more chance. You're just always so hard on him, whatever. <laughs> Mary didn't do that. She didn't do that with God. You don't find her arguing with Father God about his treatment of his son. You find her at the foot of the cross looking up at him, which is beyond me, remarkable, that she could have had her heart so tethered to the goodness of the Father that she could trust God that he knew what he was doing with her child. And that's a scary thing. But that is the picture of surrender. And that is the place that God calls us to as mothers, is to surrender our children to the place where they're safest, which is in the hands of the Father, because they don't belong to us. They aren't ours. They aren't really even our responsibility. They're his responsibility. As we finish this morning, I've asked that we could have a song. And we could actually have an old-time altar call for all of the females in this room. 
that we can surrender our children, born and unborn. We can lay them afresh and anew at the Father's feet, declaring that we trust him, declaring that they really are his rather than ours. Surrendering our dreams for those kids, our fears for those kids. Surrendering and opening that maybe that closet where the skeleton of our past that we've tried to push back, bringing it to the light to the Lord. Abba Father, as moms, we are stewards, not owners, owners of your sons and daughters. They are not ours to try and shape after our own image. They are not the report card of our spirituality or even our humanity. Today, we humbly confess our humanness, that we aren't you that we don't do things, Father, the way that you would do them. Our lack of patience with them, our impure motives, our failure to do it right 100% of the time, or even 50% of the time. We humbly confess that as moms, we have fallen short, Father. But I thank you for the job security that you never fall short. You are never impatient with them. You are never angry with them in the wrong way. And Lord, our failures only serve in some ways to be stepping stones for them to really come to know you. Because of what we have not been, that they can know that you are. Help us to acknowledge where we have failed quickly and point their eyes to you. Father, give us the freedom to do business with you in this place this morning. In Jesus' name. If, if we can stand, and if you're a, a woman in this room and you want to come forward, uh, the worship team is, gonna, is just going to sing over us a song of surrender. And I pray that the words of this song will just pierce our hearts. Feel free to come forward.
Thank you for the, the words from your word. We do pray for clarity of mm -hmm. application and understanding. Mm -hmm. Thank you that the children that you have given each of these moms have been held first in your arms before they were ever given to them to hold. Pray for the grace, Lord, to be able to trust you. And Lord, as fathers, that we would have our eyes fixed on you, Lord, fixed on you, and that you would have our ears when you need to speak to us what we need to be and what we need to say and how we need to do it. Lord, have mercy, we pray, upon the families, upon the children, but also, Lord, upon the husbands and the wives, the fathers and the mothers. We need you, Lord, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.